But when you understand innovation this way, you start to see that it's analyzing the job, not the customer specifically, that helps you to innovate better. But from a marketer's perspective, there's still a lot of value from our perspective in being more targeted, right? And choosing a particular type of customer because it's going to allow you to shape all of your messaging. It's going to allow you to figure out what media you might want to invest in and which ones you won't. So from a marketing perspective, there's still a lot of value in being hyper-targeted on specific customer personas, you might say, but it's not because they are 34 and live in Miami and drive a moped that they're your customer. That's typically the stuff you'd see in a persona. It's because they have a specific job to do and they have a particular context in which your solution is the best. And that's why they're the best customer, not because of all this demographic or like, you know, if you sell to businesses, pharmographic stuff. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Caitlin Burgoyne, a marketer by trade, four-time founder, but one of my favorite people to follow in the world of marketing and growth. So do you know exactly which customers to target? What fuels your buying decisions? If not, growth will always feel hard. Her speciality is helping teams figure out what triggers customers to buy so they can make smarter marketing decisions. She helps teams focus on what matters, yet often help them understand what they neglect, deeply understanding customers' needs. So on this show, we dive into fascinations around jobs to be done, switch interviews, and stories of where she's found breakthroughs where others have struggled. But before we get started, let's figure out how it all got started for her. I've been running a branding agency for several years, and I launched a restaurant consulting business. So we did the branding, and then we brought in these other consultants to do the restaurant, chefs, sommeliers, interior designers, that sort of thing. So that company got acquired, and I was trying to figure out, what do I want to do? You know, I'm running an agency now. I'm exchanging dollars you know, hours for dollars. I don't know that that's the model I want to stick with. And I looked at maybe doing something similar to what I'm doing today in the training world. And I was like, ah, it seems like it's getting kind of noisy over there. Now, keep in mind, this is like 2013. So I was completely (laughs) foolish. It was not at all that busy yet. I mean, it's busier now, but there's still tons of opportunity for folks. So I was like, you know what? Maybe I should start a tech company. How hard could that be? And it turns out very hard. Yeah, hard. Very hard is the answer. Very, very hard. It sounds like a good idea. How hard could that be? But what I did in the beginning was I participated in some great accelerator programs that spoke the wisdom of you need to understand your customers, you need to go out and do customer discovery, but didn't give a lot of tactical advice about how to do that. And so thinking I was, you know, doing my homework, checking all the boxes, I went off and I interviewed 300 people leading up to building the product that we ended up building. And in those interviews early on, I started noticing, you know, as I would tell the story and explain what we were building, which by the way, is not the right way to do customer discovery, which I'll come back to (laughs) part of my unlearning. The people who seemed to get excited about it and were saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm already kind of doing that in this way, but like this platform could help me a lot. They tended to be women. So I said, you know, as a marketer, I know the importance of understanding your audience and being focused on an audience. And I said, well, we'll target women. And so 300 interviews, feeling extremely confident that we know exactly what to build, 
and go off, spend months, you know, hire developers, paying out of my own pocket, building this thing and get it to market. Lots of enthusiasm, but the product was crappy. Again, like I'm not, (laughs) I'm a marketer, not a software developer. So there was lots, and I was hiring junior talent who, their credit were working extremely hard, but you know, this was their first gig out of college. So big, big thing to put on their shoulders. Fast forward, get some early users, get our kind of lead investor to commit. They put down a little bit of money on the assumption that we're going to raise a bunch more to match what they're putting in. And we don't. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we ended up pivoting the product twice. Still, I kind of lose faith in this idea that customer discovery is useful because, you know, I did the 300 interviews and we built the wrong thing. And then we ended up pivoting to this next thing. And again, it wasn't the right thing. And we're trying to listen to our customers, but like what we're hearing and what, how we're asking, which is, again, is the main problem, is not leading us to the results. And so after that, I ended up having to close down that company. And in doing that, I had to tell, you know, a lot of our investors, many of whom had been in our family and friends yeah. round, you know, your, your money's friends. gone. Yeah. Heartbreaking, really hard. They were amazing. You know, our lead investor, you know, said, we're opening up a role, a VC role, you should apply. So I was like, okay, I guess they're not as mad as I thought they were going to be. <laughs> Great. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. But they ended up hiring somebody else because they were moving really heavily into oceans and I have no oceans experience. But so along this journey, I had this belief that really, you know, customers don't know what they need and you shouldn't talk to them or at least you shouldn't talk to them in the way that the you know startup people are spouting that you should talk to them and that you know there's got to be another way and i remember spouting off you know henry ford apparently said if i would have asked people what they wanted they would have said faster horses for your listeners he never said that there's no evidence yeah, yeah. <laughs> steve jobs that's another one that thank I- you for underlining that one as well that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a pet peeve of people mine as love well love that one Another one, yeah. Steve Jobs would say, you know, he never does market research. People who are against research love to quote Steve Jobs. And then later in Steve Jobs' career, after he'd been pushed out of Apple and brought back in as a CEO, he said another thing. He said that you have to start with the customer's needs and work backwards to the solution. You can't start with the solution, and try to figure out where you're going to sell it. I've made that mistake more than anyone, and I have the scars to show it. So Steve, Haven't we unlearned, yeah. right? Along his yeah, journey. yeah. Eventually, eventually he got there. But I was spouting off these things, believing them to be true. And I was also broke and trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I had this, I had had an agency in the past. I could do marketing consulting work. So I said, okay, I've built this amazing network in the startup community. Even though I don't want to do another startup myself, I could help some folks that are, you know, with their marketing. We were actually really good at that piece. We weren't good at building products people needed, really good at getting people into those products and excited about those products. Yes, right. Yeah. No, you're fabulous at it. We knew knew with that that piece. So happy to have you on the show. Yeah, it's great. So I started working with a bunch of companies and I would sit down, you know, with the founders at the boardroom table, get the team around and I'd ask them to tell me about their customers. And it's really eye-opening to me that a lot of them just didn't understand who their customers were. Like I'd get answers like, we go after companies that sell on the internet with anywhere between 10 and 500 employees. And I was like, what? Like, that's not a, like, they were like, our ICP is, and I'm like, that's not an ICP. That's like essentially 
everyone. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you're not selling yeah. to to dog walkers and like you know landscapers, but like you're selling to every B two B company that sells stuff on the internet between ten and five hundred. Yeah, they're on the internet. Like, yeah, they're our customer. Pretty big audience, and so. And others, I would sit down and they'd say, you know what? We really don't know. We've got these six different segments that we think we might go after. And we're kind of working on all of them. And oftentimes brilliant teams, right? Brilliant founders, engineers, people who had worked at Tesla or Boeing, and now we're going off and building awesome solutions. And some of them had very early success with their companies out of the gate. They had, you know, their logo strip on their website looked really good. You know, their companies were Microsoft and IBM. and But at the end of the day, they still hadn't figured out who the real customer was. And so that led me to say, okay, there's a problem here. And it's a problem that I would like to work on. And, you know, I can help people to better understand their customers. And so this led me on the journey to saying, well, how do I do that? Because customer discovery didn't work for us. Most of these companies have done it and it hasn't worked for them. And yeah, obviously... Yeah. There's a missing link. That's when I discovered jobs to be done. So your listeners might have heard of this before, but for me, it was an affirmation that I'd never heard of. So I'll talk about it a little. No, I, I actually am really excited to hear you talk about this. And please share it as if someone has never heard of this before, because believe me, many people haven't. But it's always fascinating to me to hear everyone's spin on something you think you know or you've heard before. And especially applying this in a, a marketing context, right? Like maybe product management, people might've heard of it. Yeah, no, so let's dive in to tell us like from the beginning, jobs to be done, what is it? And how did you find it? What stone did you trip over and land on it? And how did you start using it as a tool? I think that when I first heard about it, it was in a webinar that the folks from Forget the Funnel were doing. So I was already really interested in like, you know, customer discovery has got to be, there's got to be a way to do this better because I know that there's companies that are using this that are being, having really great results. Obviously what I'm reading and the way that I'm doing it and the way that I was taught isn't working. And so I, I was watching something that they'd put together. They've now since become friends. Claire and G are the founders of that. They've been running it. I mean, it's more than five years now because I've been doing what I've been doing for five years. But I saw and Claire mentioned it and I said, that sounds interesting. Then I went off and went down what I call the jobs to be done rabbit hole. And it is deep and windy and weird. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it There's is. Yeah. a number of different folks that have kind of popped up as thought leaders in that space. And they have slightly different takes on the best way to do it. And some are very collaborative and think, you know, we're building this together. Others are very protective and say, you know, this is mine. And if you use any of my stuff, I'll sue you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, they've all gone about it in a slightly different way. So I started reading all of the stuff and seeing there was so much to learn from all of them. They were all doing things in a way that was incredibly interesting. But at the core, the core concept was the same. And the concept is essentially that people don't, buy products and services all willy-nilly, right? We don't just wake up one day and walk out and say, I think I'm going to buy water bottles today. We actually have a job that we're trying to get done. And you can almost think of it as though we hire products to help us get the job done. And if those products fulfill our needs and our circumstances, which is the important part, because everyone's context might be different. But if in our context, that product helps us to make progress, it helps us to get our job done, it helps us to move closer to where we want to be, to who we want to become then we will continue to use it. If you know it's a monthly subscription, we'll buy it over and over. If it's a product in the store, we'll pick it up next time we're there. If it's something that you only use once and then you're done, we'll tell people it was good. 
And so that's kind of the concept. But then here's the important part. If it stops working or if it doesn't work in the first place or our context changes or suddenly something else comes along before our context is better, then we'll fire that solution and we'll look for something new to hire. And when you understand innovation in this way, and from a marketer's perspective, there's a tool that comes from the Jobs We Done world that is incredibly powerful. But when you understand innovation this way, you start to see that it's analyzing the job, not the customer specifically, that helps you to innovate better. But from a marketer's perspective, there's still a lot of value from our perspective in being more targeted, right? And choosing a particular type of customer because it's going to allow you to shape all of your messaging. It's going to allow you to figure out what media you might want to invest in and which ones you won't. So from a marketing perspective, there's still a lot of value in being hyper-targeted on specific customer personas, you might say, but it's not because they are 34 and live in Miami and drive a moped that they're your customer. That's typically the stuff you'd see in a persona. It's because they have a specific job to do and they have a particular context in which your solution is the best. And that's why they're the best customer, not because of all this demographic or like, you know, if you sell to businesses, pharmographic stuff. Brilliant. Yeah. And it's great to hear that type of a definition as well and really well articulated because I think people do fall into this trap of defining what they think is a customer. Atypical is the they're on the internet and they like to buy cereal for breakfast. We're going to be the people that yeah. do that. But they miss the point of the job is that is are people hungry in the morning? And that's just a convenient thing to buy. And I think it's really fascinating to like help people get down to that level of thinking about what's the problem that people are facing here? What's their need to your point about Steve Jobs? What's the need and work backwards from that rather than trying to define an archetype character and then force a a solution upon them that you think that they might like, because invariably most people seem to create personas of themselves. They could just build products that they (laughs) want. As innovators, we create solutions because we had a problem. And many, there's a lot of survivorship bias from companies that did that and one big doing that, right? Because they were their users, they understood them deeply and they won big doing that. But there's a lot more people on the other end that tried it that way, did not win big doing that. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a lot more to try and didn't make it than the few that did. I, I'm with you there for sure. This is part of my whole unlearning. And then I discovered jobs and the tool that the jobs, if you, again, if you start to go down the rabbit hole, there's a number of different practitioners some of whom are very transparent about their processes, others who are not. And so there's kind of like, feel like you're almost putting together a little bit of a puzzle, trying to figure out how these folks are approaching it and what you can take for your use case. But what's interesting about jobs is that there's a piece of it that works really well, whether you're in marketing, whether you're in sales, whether you're in customer success, or whether you're in product. And that is the buyer journey interview or the switch interview, which switch interview. I was hoping you were going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Bob is, he is a, you know, amazing mentor of mine. And this is something I learned from him. I've watched him. I've been fortunate to get to co-interview somebody with him and saw and watch the master at work, like in the moment. And it's just incredible. But what Bob created to give a little bit of history on Bob. So Bob is a brilliant man who also happens to be dyslexic. And so writing and reading has never been his strength, yet he's an incredible product designer and he worked with Ford and Snickers and all these other companies in his career. And so at one point he was working with a condo development company that was building condos 
and they were having a hard time selling them. And he was trying to figure out, well, how can we sell more of these things? There was a recession, I think, going on at the time, but people were still buying and they weren't buying their condos. So what can we do here? So what he did was he went out and he started interviewing people who had bought their condos. And because of his style and his approach, he said, well, I don't want to take down a bunch of mad notes here. Why don't we draw it out? Tell me your story, but like, let's actually like plot it on a timeline. So like, what was going on when you first started thinking that maybe a move would be in your future? And let's kind of start there and go all the way to like, now you're moved in, you're like, you know, you're fully unpacked, you're living here. Let's kind of fill that timeline in. And so he would draw and draw. And because that for him visually was a much easier way to record what he was hearing. And he unlocked this brilliant discovery, which is that most of us, when we were interviewing customers, were going about it all wrong. What we were doing is we were talking to the customer about a specific problem that they had that related to the space that we're in and getting them to describe the problem. And sometimes not even doing that, sometimes just like showing them our thing. Yeah. Saying, would you buy this? How much would you buy, pay for it? Exactly. <laughs> like, would you pay 999 yeah. Really? Okay, yeah. great. Because that's what it is. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Well, this is the problem is that people are incredibly bad at predicting the future but they're much better at telling us about the past. And if you're talking to people who have actually made a switch, as opposed to people who fit some kind of predefined ICP that you've made up in your head, ideal customer profile for anybody who's that language is new to, then you are actually talking to people who have the energy to potentially be customers of yours, right? Or who are customers of yours if you're interviewing your own customers. And you're, what you're learning is so much more useful because you're learning oh, yeah. about everything that's happening in their life long before you can start tracking them as like a lead that came into like your marketing funnel, your sales funnel. And so you're learning about all the trigger events that are happening in their life and kind of what happens that moves them from saying, okay, like I have awareness that I might need to make a shift through to, okay, now I'm actively looking for something through to, okay, now I've found a few solutions. I've narrowed it down to a couple of choices and I'm trying to make trade-offs decide which is better. And then through to, okay, I bought the thing. I'm using the thing or I've like, you know, I've consumed it. And what was my experience? Right. And that part of the customer interview, that is full of meat that is incredibly valuable oh, from yeah. a marketing oh, perspective. Yeah. And product, I think from everywhere. Oh, it's just so valuable. And so for me, jobs to be done is all about understanding customers and understanding what triggers them to begin that buying journey, what job they're trying to get done. What are their pains with other solutions? Ones that they either considered, tried, bought, were using before that weren't working. And then what are their selfish desires, right? Because like whether you're selling to people in a B2B context or B2C, they're buying stuff because they think it's going to make their life better. It's going to get their boss off their back or it's going to satisfy the wife or it's going to whatever the thing might be. And so you need to know that piece too if you want to sell it effectively. So for me, I can learn so, so much by collecting those four pieces of information and then I can turn that into ideas and campaign ideas that are extremely targeted. So I created from the work that I've building on top of the amazing work done by the Jobs We Done community, I created the trigger technique, which is essentially a process to go off and extract this information and then to turn it into smart campaigns that aren't just thinking, you know, oh, our competitor's doing this thing over here. Maybe we should do that, which is the way that a lot of marketing is sadly run these days. Right on. Yeah, no, it's like I really enjoy that you're bringing this up. My first exposure to it was I was trying to do a rebrand for my business and I hired people who knew me really well 
one guy was James Bates. He wrote a great book, Undercover UX. He's a UX designer. And that's when he first introduced me to this idea of the switch interview. It literally blew my mind. I watched him interview people who'd worked with me to try and understand what was the experience they went through before they even ever found me, wanted to work with me with anything, right? And I would sit back and watch the interviews he did and like literally like be writing like paper full of notes, just like, oh my God, I never thought of it that way. Oh my God, how silly, how could I? It's just so, so fascinating. It's just like this whole well. On the back of that, I'm also dyslexic too as well. So writing stuff down is like a disaster for me. It's why I like post-it notes and like design thinking because it's all drawing and pictures and conversation and collaboration, right? I'm, I'm in my sweet space there. When I to sit down and like type 10,000 words and explain what the hell I'm doing, forget it. It could take me like three weeks to get that done. Give me a post-it note and I'll draw you an infographic and have a chat all day. All of these techniques really were a huge breakthrough for me personally about understanding myself, what I liked to do, what I wanted to do, how I could talk to people about the things I like to do in a way that resonated with problems that they had or things that they were interested in solving. And really the culmination of that was creating a whole new brand for the advisory business that I had. Unbelievable. So many people would start reaching out to me going like as if they already knew me. Yes, it was a filtering Yeah, it's a filtering mechanism. So the people who like were on my vibe or similar vibe would be like, they just show up to say, hey, you, I like the things you say. That's what I think too. Do you, and you're like, do you want to do, do some work together? You're like, sure, let's go. And then all the people that were hard work for me to work with or pain the ass or were just like the wrong customers who had the different expectations of what it took to build products. And there was a misalignment between expectations and like, here's the other thing, like to your point, another piece that came out of the jobs to be done that was just like mind blowing for me is thinking about your competitive set. So is this something that we should talk about a bit as well? You just keep talking. Honestly, it's all good. This is great stuff. It's really fascinating, especially for listeners to hear it both from a product perspective and a marketing perspective. I just think it's fascinating. So yeah, please tell us more. To your point, the ones that might've been a bad fit, chances are they were comparing you to a different thing in their head, right? They were thinking about rather than hiring you, maybe they were going to be hiring somebody who just build what they told them to build, right? As opposed to help them figure out if they were actually building the right thing. And that would have been a lot cheaper. Maybe they buy somebody overseas and hire them. And so like their competitive set, it could have been this totally different thing. And so this is a big thing that came out of jobs that was mind changing for me as well. So once you kind of like define like at a high level, what your what the job is, so let's say your job is, you know, you want to get to work on time. That competitive set is massive, depending on the context of your situation. We'll narrow it down. Let's say that kind of like you are a knowledge worker like us living in a city and you're far enough away from the city that walking isn't an option, right? So now we have narrowed it down a little bit. You're busy. You've got enough money that you can kind of afford to have your own vehicle should you want to. It's not, not cost prohibitive. So now you're looking at your competitive set. Let's look at a time span of 150 years. Same story, right? So in the like, you know, 150 years ago, they could have hired a horse and carriage to get them to work, right? Maybe you're a banker, you need to get to work. And then the early automobiles came along. Well, you can afford the first early automobile. Like now you're taking that to work. And then like the modern vehicle, you know, your your typical Toyota sedan, right? Like, you know, now now you're taking that to work. And it's like, okay, well now there's more innovation happening in the space and Teslas are on the market and you believe in conserving 
the planet and the energy. So you're going to use a Tesla, an electric vehicle. Well, guess what? In the last two years, you probably fired all of those. And now you probably get to work by logging on to Zoom. Walking from the kitchen with coffee machine. To exactly, the right? And so when you understand your competitive side, if you're car automakers right now, you're probably, if you realize that Zoom is a competitor for you, you should be a little nervous. The right need on. Yeah. to own a vehicle for the convenience of being able to get to work, which is why most people own vehicles. They need it for working purposes. Because for your, just your leisure vehicle, most people don't use it all that much. You know, a vehicle sits in a driveway, especially today, almost all of the time. Here's my stat that blows people's mind. I've never owned a car. I literally, literally have never owned a car. And for you listening on, who know that I have a face for radio, I'm well into this game now. I'm no spring chicken anymore. So it blows people's mind. I remember quite because we lived in America. I would say to people, no, I don't own a car. The only time I would get a car is I would hire it to go away, hire it for weekend trips or get out of the city. Rest of the time, I didn't need it. And it right? blew people's minds. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so this idea of understanding the competitive set and this, and to come back to your story of when the clients that started kind of like gravitating toward you that were always the best fit. April Dunford is another person like me, oh, fell down amazing. the jobs to be done rabbit hole, amazing marketer. And her specialty is positioning. And a huge piece of the exercise that she walks her teams with is she gets them all together in a room and she basically asks them, what are the alternative solutions people could use? If you don't exist, let's pretend there's a world where your product doesn't exist. What else are people using? And at first, of course, they'll talk about the regular suspects, which might be what they perceive to be their direct competitors. Like if you're talking to the team at QuickBooks, they might say something like FreshBooks or Sage or Wave Accounting. Like those, that would be what they say. But then you go, okay, but what if they're not using those either? Oh, okay, well, they're probably using Excel or Google Sheets or, you know, handwriting invoices or using a payroll company. And so you start to get into these layers of who your real competition is. And when you understand the job, it allows you to see your solution in a really innovative way. A company that I think is doing this really cleverly right now is ConvertKit. So ConvertKit is an email. Are you familiar with them? Yeah. I had to go through the pain. I think I even asked you at one point, what was the best email provider? Because I did MailChimp and had to bin that and right, whatever. I've been through every one of them, but uh, ConvertKit was one on the list to look Switching at. Switching from one to uh, another yeah. is a big yeah. pain point. And so I recently made the switch to ConvertKit and they have an amazing concierge service that if you have a list of a certain size, they need to know you're serious about emailing. They'll actually do all the kind of work for you. And it's still work on your end, but it's much less because they're, they're doing a lot of it for you. But the service that I was using previous to that, they actually built a second product. So they had like version one of our product and version two, and they are like super promoting version two. They're like, you got to get on version two. It's going to cost a little bit more, but it's going to have all these different things. And I said, well, how do I start using version two? They said, oh, you have to migrate everything over there. Like you have to, I'm like, so I have to rebuild everything in your new product, like none of my other stuff can just get sucked in and like, no, 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 we don't offer that yet. I'm like, you're nuts. You think like, yeah, new people will use version two, but like, why would any of your core customers who have spent all this time building out email nurture sequences and setting up lists and tagging and segmenting, there's a lot that goes into email. Why would any of them manually go and do all of that for a marginally better product. Like you're incredibly insane. So I had no intention of moving over to version two until at some point I assumed they would make it click yeah, the button yeah. and migrate. But I also wasn't, you know, planning to move to ConvertKit. 
I was aware of ConvertKit. I'd heard great things about ConvertKit, but I was satisfied enough with where I was. And what to me led to the switch was ConvertKit doesn't really think of itself as an email marketing software. ConvertKit thinks of itself as a platform that helps creators make a living creating. And so email is a piece of that. They also have, you know, landing pages. You can take payments through the product. There's a bunch of different features that if you're thinking about yourself as purely email software, don't don't make sense. But if you're thinking of yourself as an all-in-one solution for creators, people who are creating online courses, people who are building, you know, membership communities that are paid, people that are have a paid newsletter, there's a bunch of tools in there that are really valuable for those folks. And then they announced one that is a game changer for the creator industry because they know the job they're trying to get done. Again, helping creators make a living creating. They announced the sponsor network. Essentially, they will become an agency. It will go between brands that want to work with creators and creators that want to work with brands. They'll do all the heavy lifting of finding the brands, getting you know their submissions for ads to go in newsletters. And they're only going to take 25% to do that for you. So suddenly I was like, oh my God, well, I've got this newsletter that I've been working on monetizing myself. Dealing with sponsorships is, well, not the worst thing in the world. Very time consuming. And I hadn't gotten to the stage where I had like inflow of demand. Like I don't have a salesperson who's out there trying to sell the, the sponsorships. I remember listening to a podcast with the founder of The Hustle, which was a newsletter that had grown really quickly, ended up getting acquired by HubSpot for 20 million. He said on his staff, he had three writers and 25 salespeople finding sponsors and going through all the back and forth and negotiating. That takes a lot of work. And I'm just this one little person trying to do it all on my own. So when ConvertKit said, we're doing this thing and you can be one of the early creators as part of this product. I was like, Hell yes. And so with the announcement of that, take my money, take my money, creators moving over, right? Creators are coming in droves now, but if they were thinking of themselves as email marketing software, that part of the solution doesn't need to exist because why would that even come into their mind? But they don't think of themselves that way. They think of themselves in the job. The job is creators are trying to earn a living with their work and that opens up a whole bunch of opportunities. Yeah, no, it's a fabulous example, right? And even just like talk about the solution set then that they end up with, it's actually so targeted for people who have that problem, that creator, all the things that they would love to have in a business, but they can never find that in one tool. Sure as hell can't do that in a MailChimp. Sure as hell can't do that in a a typical email provider. Totally, right? Like MailChimp suffered from not being super targeted. Like when when ConvertKit came out there, like we're going to be hyper, hyper targeted on creators. And people thought initially they were going to limit themselves. But Nathan, the founder, was like, I see that this is going to be a space that's just going to keep growing. So even while the audience might be this big now, I think in five years, it'll be this big. And then in 10 years, it'll be this big. Whereas MailChimp, which we were using, they are proud about the fact that anybody from like, you know, a one person, you know, small business up to multi-million dollar companies are using them. Well, what does that mean for the product, right? Because those people have very different needs. Totally right. And their product is I sort of, I always feel like they sort of iterated themselves out of product market fit about five times. It's like the product looked like it was going in the right direction, but nope, no, we're going to go back and iterate out of it. And it's just a fascinating, interesting tool. But ConvertKit, again, was one of these ones I always thought was really fascinating. As you said, for creators, it just had so many tools that people in that domain needed to just 
get their courses booked in, get people locked into memberships, like super easy and convenient and really well targeted, as you say, and delivered for people with that type of problem set. So yeah, no, really, really great example. And yeah, it's always fun to wind up MailChimp. So who doesn't like winding them up whenever you get a chance? These are great sort of tools that I really love hearing you talk about, Caitlin, though not only from a product development point of view, but from a marketing point of view. Those different perspectives, I think is one of my favorite things about great tools is when you know they get remixed by salespeople, marketing people, accountants, product developers, you name it, like they can take these tools and sort of get an insight in them. Tell me a little bit more, what have been some, as you look forward now, you're building some fantastic businesses. I love your newsletter. It's amazing. I just think everybody should sign in and get it. So what are you excited about as you look forward? So things have kind of shifted for me in ways that I didn't expect. But one of the wonderful things about understanding buyer journeys and what might make somebody switch is like, there's always this trigger event. For me, that was very much discovering that I was pregnant. And at the time we were trying, but it had been three years of trying and without success. And then finally it clicked. And at the time my husband was in, (laughs) thank you. My, My baby is now 14 months old. So a little bit of time has passed, but at the time where we discovered it, my husband had been, you know, three months into launching a new company and a new company that was an enormous amount of work. It is an enormous amount of work. The model that we had designed, which what we thought would be, what you thought would be really neat. I won't get into that whole backstory, but like at the time it was during the pandemic, his culinary background, he had been working offshore as a safety officer, but like he, obviously nobody was flying. So he was like, now what do I do? Like, I can't work as a safety officer offshore. I can't open a restaurant. Nobody, <laughs> this is the worst time to open a restaurant. What can we do? And so that led us to this idea and this model. But it became really clear that that model wasn't working and that if we wanted it to work, it would only work at scale. And it was like, if this is the company that we want to do and scaling it requires figuring out either massive amounts of VC or building out incredibly important kind of like access to farmer networks like this and still the margins on the product were really bad, right? It was like, it's a lot of work. The margins are really bad. So it was like, I could kind of foresee, I was like, this isn't going to work. I've been through my startup pain already. I'd watched lots of people persist <laughs> for too long on the wrong on idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I had felt that I knew the pain. And so I was like, I was very early being like, this isn't going to work. And I was also pregnant and it's not going to work. And we need to figure out something in the next nine months because like, I'm still running my business while trying to help you run this one that just isn't going to work. But my husband had not been through the same startup pain that I had. And he was very much, he was like, you know, no, we just need to keep working at it. Cause that's like the entrepreneurial mindset is like, nothing works in the beginning. You know, you're usually two, three years into it. Like, no, no, no. This is one of the ones that just isn't going to work. I'm going to give you the three years back, right? I'm going to save you the time. Let's get out of this sooner than later. So from that, you know, nine months of pregnancy to 14 months later, what I've discovered and two unexpected spinal surgeries for my husband, what I've discovered is that I really want to build a business that is, I guess, as scalable. I want to build a low people or no people business that doesn't require a lot of my time. And that's a pretty dream scenario. But I also yeah. work backwards from that, like, how do I actually get there? And what I'm doing now is I'm actually taking why we buy, you mentioned my newsletter, I'm going to be building that out into a media company. 
So that's my focus now. I'm still doing training when, you know, I've got incredible content that if somebody wants to hire me to do the content I have, I'll absolutely do it because it doesn't take any extra effort. I just show up and have a lot of fun training and then go back to my day. But I'm not doing any consulting. I'm not taking on any kind of exchange your time for dollar scenarios. I'm just focused on building out why we buy as a media company and doing it with an amazing team of contractors as opposed to individual employees. So that's kind of like, talk to me in a year if it's working, (laughs) but that's my focus. There's such great businesses. Before I started Nobody Studios, I've spent six years. And even now, I don't even have to... I have a team that have run the whole thing because it's built up over time. And everyone was an independent contractor. Uh, Actually, most of them still are. Like, I'm the only employee of my company. But they're just like the boundary of... I don't know what is a company anymore. I think it's radically shifted because these people, I love them like family and they're amazing and they're doing great stuff. One of the things I think that a business affords you is time to like really choose the things that you enjoy and it shows up in your work so much you know it's funny you mentioned like when i did the switch interviews one of the things that came out of it was these like six statements of signs you're a good fit to work with me they were like six statements and i swear every time somebody ever gets in touch with me the first thing that they mention is i read these six statements oh, about signs you'd be a good fit are so good And that all came out of a switch interview because it becomes a calling card. So you're using less energy and you're getting more energy from whatever engagement transaction you have doing that work because you're with people that are energized the same way you are, that care about the same things you are, that don't want to spend time on BS, like telling you what they want to build rather than learning what needs to be built. You're just with people who have your flow. And that is such an energizing place to be because you keep building businesses like that. Like you jump out of bed every day, looking forward to spend time with people that think like that, that want to work like that. And there is no pushing sort of boulders uphill. Like it's hard at times, but you feel like there's a natural momentum to things. And I'm excited to see what you do. Like I've always said, I'm a huge fan of your work. I find it fabulous, really funny, really on point. And, you know, I just think you show up in your work as you, as meeting you in person. And it's hard for people to do that, right? It's hard for people to find that voice and just be themselves. And you do it really well. So yeah, I'm excited to see what you do in that space and turning it into sort of a brand in itself is going to be fascinating. And what's been the hardest part so far then? It's always fun to know like what surprised you as you've gone on that journey so far. That's a good question. I would say, I mean, I kind of lucked my way into the way that I did sponsorships initially. So I had I had no concept that this could be a money-making asset, right? I was using it as a way to connect with people who could potentially be future customers for my business customer camp. Maybe they hire us to do training. Maybe they buy some of our on-demand products and they DIY their own research. That was my vision. And this was just that, right? And it was just a marketing tool for the company. And then a couple of people started reaching out and saying, we wanted to sponsor the newsletter. And I thought, I didn't even inquire as to what they might pay because I just thought, for, you know, 150 bucks, 200 bucks to pop yeah, an ad in there. I respect my yeah. audience too much for that. It's too much back and forth yeah. for me. I just don't want to do it. And then a friend of mine who we were working on, you know, a collaboration that eventually both of us decided we had way too much going on <laughs> to move forward with that collaboration. He'd done it a little bit differently. He had found four sponsors. He got them to commit for a year. They each paid a sizable amount. And it basically allowed him to get paid to write his newsletter 
which was nice because he'd been writing it for free before, again, as a marketing tool for his company. And because those partnerships were a lot, and the amount he had charged for me was, I was like, whoa, like that's meaningful because you don't have a huge list either. Neither did I, you know, both of us were under 10,000 at the time. Then I said, maybe I should reply to some of these people who are asking me about sponsorship and like, you know, pitch them on doing something bigger. So I'd say that I got really lucky. I decided to, to do quarterly sponsorship package instead of an annual one, which I'm yep. really grateful that I did because while I was looking at him and thinking, wow, that's a lot more money than I expected. He was way undercharging. I was like, this is for everything he was delivering because it was no more than just Here's, you know, a line in our email. He was doing all of this other stuff with them, right? And he was like putting together guides and they were doing branded webinars together and all of these other stuff. And so when you realized all the time that went into actually delivering on those deliverables for him, it was an enormous amount of time. And so it was almost like he was like an agency doing work for them. And then they also got access to his email list. And so I was glad that I only did the three months with most of my sponsors because I did the same. And I was grateful for the amount that I got in sponsorship, but I executed a lot of work for them. And it wasn't just like, let's just drop this in our newsletter and go on. There was a lot of projects that were ongoing that I'd committed to. So I'd say the biggest part was learning how to navigate the sponsorships and what is a brand collaboration versus a straight up copy in the newsletter. And like, that's what you're getting. And of course the, value of those are very different. One is you write the copy, we drop it in the newsletter. The other is we work together strategically, come up with a concept, like execute it together, multi-channel thing. That's a different thing. And so I'd say the hardest part for me has been navigating and figuring out those sponsorships. I'd say I got really lucky in the way that I went about it. And now, looking forward, I'm being invited to be part of the ConvertKit Sponsor Network will hopefully take a lot of that headache off of me so that I can focus on just creating great work and actually building out some new assets that I think are going to be really great for our audience. So that's been the hardest part. And the Sponsor Network makes a world of difference. Right on. Well, listen, Caitlin, it's been absolutely amazing to speak to you today. Love to dive in and drive to be done, switch interviews, problem sets, solution sets, figuring out how to do sponsorship and newsletters and like really diving in. Like it's we great really to see. We really went over the gamut, didn't we? Totally, right? But you're living it. And that's what I really enjoy about people who are like really like living the ideas that they share with the world and they apply them to their own businesses. So yeah, you know, as I say, huge fan, keep hustling. Thank you very much for being on the show. And I'm excited to see where your next endeavor goes. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Barry.